This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. With its sleek, aggressive design, improved powertrain for better performance and fuel efficiency, plus standard Toyota Safety Sense technology, there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Visit toyota.com for details. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of the roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 24th, 2017. I'm Sarah Kresge. In this week's show, Stephen Brusati joins Alexa Billow to talk about the evolution of flight in dinosaurs. David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from the Daily News site. And in the latest installment of our monthly book segment, Jen Goldbeck talks about the book Cannibalism, a Perfectly Natural History, with its author, Bill Shutt. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our Daily News site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories, several of which came from this year's AAAS annual meeting. First up, in fact, we have an annual meeting story on the source of altruism in humans. Why are people nice to each other? Uh, is this something we can just figure out with the tools of science? I guess researchers are trying. And so far, it suggested the research suggested that we like how it feels to give, that warm glow. Well, that's sort of been the idea. They sort of run this test, and they call this the trust game. And basically how it works, Sarah, is say somebody gives you $20, and they give me $80, and we know how much the other got. And then the researchers can say to me, well, do you want to give any of your money to Sarah? And often what they see in these games is, yes, I will give – I would give you back some of my money. Um, and the question is, why do I do that? Do I do that because it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling to do that? Or do I do that because I sort of feel guilty? Because I know you got, I know that you know that I got more than you did. And so am I just sort of trying to assuage my feelings of guilt? Right. So that's where the twist comes in. And they say, well, what if we could sneakily hand you more money? Sarah doesn't know about it. Are you still going to give her um, an amount that about makes you guys equal, or are you going to hold back that little secret portion of the money? Okay, right. what so, do people do? Dave? So, right, for example, again, say they gave you 20 bucks, Sarah, mm -hmm. and they gave me 100 bucks, mm -hmm. but you only thought I got maybe 60 bucks. Right. So to sort of, if it was just sort of about 
uh, assuaging my guilt, I would just give you maybe 20 bucks. And I go, well, Sarah thinks I'm giving her a big portion of my money, but I'm really not. But at least I don't feel guilty because she thinks I'm being a nice guy. But if I gave you a lot more than that, a lot more than I had to, then that would indicate that maybe I was after this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling of mm-hmm. just trying to make everything equal. And? And, well, it was sort of mixed. It turns out some people gave a little bit of their money to their partner. Some people gave a lot more of their money to the, their partner. But what the researchers found was interesting is that the people who all sort of made similar decisions, so all the people that decided just to give a little bit of money or all the people that decided to give a lot of their money, they showed within those groups, they actually showed very similar brain patterns when the researchers looked at it in an fMRI machine. And what all this means is there may actually be consistent ways that people are wired for how sort of altruistic they are. And they may they may actually explain why some people, and this is stretching a little bit, but the authors say this may explain why some people, for example, are happier maybe in a more socialist society and other people are happy in a more communistic society or maybe happier in a more capitalistic society. All right, I'm going to dial it back here. <laughs> is this or is this not a weird study? A white, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic study, you know, using college kids and a relatively small sample size. Great point, Sarah. And with all these psychology studies, you know, replication is key. Well, we have another story from the AAAS meeting on this one on keeping arsenic out of our food. Sounds like a good idea because on its face, arsenic just screams poison to me. You know, it's just it's very much like a tool of criminals in detective novels. But, you know, it's a naturally occurring element. It's a metal that shows up in rocks and soil and it can contaminate water um, and also food. How does it get into things like plants? Well, it's kind of a case of mistaken identity. Plants sort of take it up by accident because they're bringing in other nutrients and arsenic sort of hitchhikes its way in there. And so one idea scientists have is trying to find a way to genetically engineer plants to make them more selective so they don't take up arsenic. And with new gene editing technologies like CRISPR, that's a possibility. Could they do that through breeding as well? They could do that through breeding as well. A CRISPR would be a more direct way to do it, but it's also possible that you could breed varieties that maybe have uh, less ability to take up arsenic with ones that have a lot of ability and therefore reduce the um, uptake of arsenic from the latter plants. Now, this is especially of concern in rice. And so in parts of Asia, they're looking at changing the way they irrigate crops. So that's basically instead of preventing the plants from taking up the arsenic. Biologically, they're saying, let's just take the arsenic out of the environment. How would they do that? Well, right. One of the problems is that a lot of these crops are irrigated with well water that's drawn from deep within this arsenic-rich rock. Another problem is that fields that are really flooded with a lot of water, the plants didn't take up a lot more arsenic. And so the idea is to maybe either change the source of the water or to have the fields dry a little bit before you water them so you don't have this flooding arsenic problem. Now, that can create another problem because dry fields or unflooded fields, the plants can take up more cadmium, which is also toxic. So there's also an effort out there to categorize how much arsenic is in different foods and deal with it in order of severity. But what kind of levels are they talking about when they look at these foods and water? Well, so the problem is that uh, scientists really don't know what levels of arsenic are safe in food. And by the way, arsenic is a big problem because high levels, especially in drinking water, can lead to cancers, many types of cancers, lung and cardiovascular disease, and even neurodevelopmental delays in children. So it's a big deal. So the first thing scientists really need to do is figure out what levels are safe. And then if they can do that, they can sort of rank the foods and help consumers make smarter purchasing decisions. 
Last up, we have a story on cracking the smell code. When it comes to seeing light or color, we know that a certain wavelength evokes a certain color. 510 nanometers looks green to you and me. Uh, But when it comes to odors, mapping out, you know, the chemical and then what it smells like to a person has been a surprisingly difficult problem. Recently, researchers tried to see if hosting a competition between different artificial intelligence approaches using a giant smell data set uh, would help them crack the code. Let's start with the data set, Dave. Where, what kind of data did they start with? They actually had data from a study that was conducted a couple of years ago where researchers had 49 volunteers rate the smell of 476 vials of pure odorants. And they had to use descriptors like fishy or garlicky or sweet or burnt. And they were given a choice of about 19 descriptors to use. And this result... Including Uranus. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) And this resulted in 1 million data points. And what the researchers did in this new study was they wanted to see, well, can we match up the data points with the smells, with the types of molecules that we're talking about here and find a way to predict, okay, if we have a new molecule or a molecule that wasn't part of the study, will the algorithm be able to tell what it smells like? That's where the competition comes in. That's where the competition comes in. They fed these into the computers, and what did the computers do? The computers basically looked at about two-thirds of the data, and the computers were able to sort of come up with uh, smells that actually sort of matched the other third of the data, what people were actually reporting. So, for example, the computers could tell that molecules with sulfur groups on them tended to produce a garlicky smell or should produce a garlicky smell. And that's indeed what some of the participants reported as well. And also molecules with a similar chemical structure to vanillin, which comes from vanilla beans, not surprisingly seem to have a bakery smell, which the computer was also able to predict. The AIs got pretty good at this, pretty much as good as people. You know, people have differences, and the computers also saw those differences. But there are some unanswered questions. Like, what if other descriptors were added in? Would the machine machine approach that was, you know, chosen by this competition, would it still be optimized? Right. 19 is a pretty small number when you think about the things that we smell every day. And words like garlicky or fishy are kind of broad, and you'd want to get more specific than that, especially if you, as a researcher's hope, want to someday be able to apply this technology to maybe developing new types of odors or producing foods that have sort of precisely tailored sense to them. And for that, you're going to need a lot more data and a lot more nuance in what these algorithms are able to detect and predict. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a lot of coverage from the AAAS meeting, uh, including a story about the invisible problem in gun violence research, a story about a computer that can detect when students are at risk of dropping out of college, and finally, a story about how to prevent earthlings from contaminating other bodies in our solar system with life. Those are a few of the bunch of AAA stories we covered over the weekend. And for Science Insider, we've got a story about bird flu becoming resurgent in China. Also about how U.S. universities are responding to President Trump's proposed travel ban. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. 
Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients, courtesy of over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries across the U.S., right to your door. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, there's no food waste. Some of the meals available in February include cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad, and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. These days, when you can get practically everything on demand, like our podcast, you can listen wherever you want, whenever you want. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours, carrying packages, finding money, making sure that you're there the right day of the week, when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. I signed up on the site, and it is a super simple, straightforward process in order to get this postage and get things out the door. Who wouldn't want to just skip all the steps involved with driving, taking a bus, going to the post office, and instead being able to just lean back, print out what you need, and mail off your postage? I don't know about you, but if I never went to the post office again, I'd be pretty happy about it. So right now, use our code SCIENCEMAG for this special offer. It's a four-week trial and includes postage and a digital scale, so don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in Science Mag. That's stamps.com. Enter code Science Mag. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Dinosaurs didn't evolve flight all at once. They didn't just wake up one morning and realize they were birds. The adaptations required for flight evolved gradually, and for other purposes. Dinosaurs far too big to fly had wings, probably for display, before they ever took to the skies. Today's guest is Stephen Bersotti, who writes that the excellent fossil record of the transition from dinosaurs to birds is a model for major evolutionary transformations of all kinds. I'm Alexa Billow. Steve, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So why are avian dinosaurs such a good model for evolutionary change? Sometime around 170 to 150 million years ago, somewhere in that time frame, you had a dinosaur start to fly. And that was a big transition. It takes a lot for an animal to completely reshape its body, for evolution to change the body so that 
an animal can start doing something totally new, in this case, flying around. And that gives animals, you know, access to totally new environments. So that sort of thing doesn't happen all the time. This was a big transition, a big change. And we have a lot of fossils that record it. So that is what makes it really exciting because this is a transition that we can study. We can look back into the fossil record. You need fossils to study these transitions, and we have the fossils to do it. The ancestor of modern birds arrived at a body plan that is extremely familiar to anyone who's seen a pigeon or a songbird. But that body plan was not exactly a foregone conclusion. Two examples you cite are Ichi and Microraptor. Can we talk a little bit about these odd body plans? Which, By the way, Microraptor is my favorite dinosaur. But what do these different body plans mean for the transition to flight? You look at any bird today, and there's over 10,000 species of birds, so they're hugely diverse. But all birds, regardless of what they do, they have the same sort of body plan, the same sort of blueprint. You know, all birds have feathers. All birds, except for a few that have lost them, have wings. Lots of things that make birds birds. And what we see in the fossil record is that that bird blueprint didn't just evolve overnight. It didn't just happen one day, but it took a long time many millions of years for that to be compiled gradually, piece by piece, assembled by evolution. And a lot of those features that we see as bird hallmarks today, including things that birds need to fly, like feathers and like wings, those things evolved one by one and for reasons totally unrelated to flight. Feathers probably first evolved to help these dinosaurs keep their bodies warm. That's just one example. And so you got to a point in dinosaur evolution where there were a lot of small feathered dinosaurs with wings that looked like they were experimenting with different ways of flying. And Microraptor is one of those. This was a very close cousin of Velociraptor, but quite a bit smaller, just about the size of a crow. And it had feathers, it had wings, but it didn't only have wings on its arms, it also had wings on its legs. And that's something we don't see in any modern bird. So that's a completely new type of design for a flying dinosaur. And then E, the other one that you mentioned, this is something that was just found less than two years ago. It's a tiny little dinosaur and it has a totally different way of flying. It has a, a wing like that of a bat. It's just a membrane of skin that attaches between the animal's arms and its body. And so this was a dinosaur that wasn't even using feathers to fly around. So th those are just two examples of dinosaurs that were doing totally different things and just how much diversity and how much experimentation was going on early in the history of these dinosaurs that started to fly. They're such wonderfully strange little critters. I really love them. How close did those guys come to powered flight? This is one of the big questions because... The thing that modern birds do so well and that really sets them apart from almost anything else is that they don't just fly, they don't just move through the air, but they have powered flight. They flap their wings and that flapping, that provides the thrust which gives them the lift that they need to fly. So they're not just passively gliding around. Of course, birds can glide as well at certain times, but a lot of different animals can glide. And so one of the big questions is how did dinosaurs evolve powered flight? And there's still a really open question about whether birds were the only dinosaurs that evolved that ability to flap their wings and stay up in the air and move around in the air, or whether things like Microraptor may have evolved powered flight 
separately to birds. And maybe there were lots of different groups of dinosaurs, small dinosaurs with feathers, with wings, that grew fast, that had pretty active metabolisms, that were experimenting with different ways of flying. And so that's one of the challenges. We are pretty sure that Microraptor could move around in the air. Uh, there have even been experiments, wind tunnel experiments and computer experiments that show that Microraptor was pretty good at gliding around. But could it flap its wings? Did it have the right type of wings? Did it have the right types of muscles? That is a real open question. And if we could answer that, that would give us a lot more insight into how modern bird flight emerged out of all of these dinosaurs with feathers that were starting to experiment with different ways of moving in the air. Dinosaurs aren't thinking about an eventual goal of being able to fly. So these adaptations that appeared before flight had to be doing something else. What does a dinosaur need wings for if it's not for flying? I mean, here's the thing. We know now that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. And the first dinosaurs with feathers were only found 20 years ago. So this is a relatively new thing. When I was in school, I didn't even know that these dinosaurs were out there. And since the first feathered dinosaurs were found, a whole bunch of them have been found. Thousands of individual fossils at least 20 different species. Most of them come from these spectacular sites in China where a lot of dinosaurs were buried very quickly, so you get the fine details of their feathers preserved. So we know now that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. Maybe all dinosaurs had some type of feathers. But we also know that the first feathers were very simple. The first dinosaurs that had feathers didn't have the sort of feathers that modern birds had, they had feathers that looked a lot like hair, just very simple strands, very simple filaments, probably for insulation to keep these, these dinosaurs warm. Then we know that this one group of dinosaurs, this advanced group of meat-eating dinosaurs, theropod dinosaurs, started to modify those simple feathers and they started to get bigger and they got flatter and they started to branch out. And that's how the quill pen type of feather came to be. And we also now know that some of these dinosaurs didn't just have quill pen feathers, but they had them lined up and layered over each other on the arms and uh, actually had wings. And the first dinosaurs that turn up with wings in the fossil record are things that are about the size of a horse, so they're way too big to fly. So it looks like wings didn't even evolve for flight. So that sort of story is coming into focus. Wings probably evolved for display. Maybe only later they were co-opted or repurposed as a, uh, an airfoil for flight. But that's kind of the limit where we're at now. So I want to talk a little more about the use of computer models, mathematical models, in determining whether these guys could fly. What questions can we and what questions can't we ask and address using those sorts of methods? The big question that we don't have a good answer to is which of these feathered winged dinosaurs could actually fly. Which ones could glide? Which ones could flap and have more powered flight? We don't really know because there have been very few experiments. And there's different ways that you can do experiments. But one thing that's needed at this point is more computational study. So more modeling, more engineering type of work where either physical models of these dinosaurs are built and put into wind tunnels to see what happens when they're put into an airstream, or digital models put into animation software. So that's really where the field is right now. We know there was a huge diversity of dinosaurs with feathers, even a huge diversity of dinosaurs with wings, but we need to know what those wings were doing. And the only way to do that 
because we can't go back in time and see these dinosaurs, the only way to do that is to run these type of engineering experiments. We really do have this treasure trove of recent fossil finds that you talked about documenting this transition of dinosaurs to birds. How does this help us understand other major evolutionary transitions that aren't so well documented? The only way to study evolutionary transitions is with fossils, because it's not the sort of thing that we can just recreate in the lab. And it's also not the sort of thing that you can just go out in nature and see today. Some of these transitions might be in progress, but we need a lot more time to see them. So really, the only way to study them is with fossils. But that's difficult because, as we know, the fossil record is so imperfect and fossils are very rare and fossils can be very fragmentary. They can be beat up. We can only get little snippets here and there, little snapshots. So that's why the dinosaur bird transition has emerged as such an important one because we have a lot of fossils, thanks to those volcanoes that buried all of these feathered dinosaurs in China, Pompeii style, over 120 million years ago. That's given us a lot of individual snapshots. And we have a good family tree, so we can stitch those snapshots onto the family tree. And it really gives us something of a running commentary, a film almost, of this transition in action. And of course, it's not a perfect film. Some of the scenes are blurry and some of them are out of focus, even out of order a little bit. But it's coming really more into focus with each fossil find. There's very few other transitions where we have so many fossils, where we have such good preservation of the fossils and where we have a good understanding of the family tree. So because of that, the dinosaur bird transition it has become one of these great test cases. And there's so many people all over the world that are studying it in different ways. And now really is the time for the engineering crowd, I think, to come into the picture a bit more and start to test how some of these dinosaurs could have flown. And that's going to be the next big breakthrough. Steve, I know it's very late where you are. Thank you so much for staying up and talking with us today. Thank you very much. Always my pleasure to talk about dinosaurs. Stephen Bersotti writes an insight on the evolution of birds in this week's issue of Science. Hi there. I'm Jen Golbeck here with two new books for you for February. Later, we'll take a look at Homo Deus from Sapiens author Yuval Harari. First, we're going to dive into the world of cannibalism. Often considered a taboo, it turns out cannibalism is incredibly common in human cultures and throughout the animal kingdom. I'm joined by Dr. Bill Shutt to discuss his new book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. Bill, thanks for joining us, and I'd like to jump right in. Can you tell us your favorite, most surprising example of cannibalism that you found in the animal kingdom? Probably these legless amphibians called Sicilians. The hatchlings, when they come out of the egg, the first thing they do is swarm around their mother. And people thought that was kind of interesting until they took a closer look. And what they realized was that these individuals were peeling their mother's skin kind of like a grape. So then they looked at the live bearers and they saw that the developing fetuses were equipped with these little teeth that they used to peel and eat the inner lining of the oviduct while they're still in their mothers. That kills the mother, right? Absolutely not. The skin keeps growing back. You know, they looked at the skin of these and, and they compared the skin of a mother who had just laid eggs to a female that hadn't. And what they found was that the skin of the female that had just laid the eggs is just laden with fat, really nutritious. It's not your typical dead epidermis. And as far as the lining goes, it's really the same thing. There's an inner nutrient laden inner lining of these oviducts, and that's what's peeled. They don't really eat their way through and, you know, swim around inside their moms. 
When a lot of us think about cannibalism among animals, I think we think of like spiders or praying mantises, but you found it throughout all the way up through primates. Were there differences that you could see in the types of animals and the way that they participated in cannibalism? Let's start with insects and vertebrates like fish that might lay thousands and thousands of eggs. These eggs are not looked upon in many instances as, as individuals. They're looked upon as a harmless, nutritious, readily available food source. So a codfish that gobbles down some of its own eggs is probably looking at those eggs more like we would look at a handful of raisins than it would offspring. It's the same in insects. In many instances, eggs are laid that will never hatch, and these are called trophic eggs. And really what they are are kids' meals that are laid to present a food source to the young when they are hatched. So even though the book talks about the animal kingdom, two-thirds of it is really about cannibalism among humans. And you traveled all over the world and interviewed lots of people about cannibalism in different cultures in its history. There's really a taboo surrounding it when we talk about cannibalism now. Has that always been the case? And do you think that's fair? To me, it all boils down to culture is king. And in Western culture from the time of the ancient Greeks and then through the Romans and then Shakespeare, Sigmund Freud, the Brothers Grimm, Daniel Defoe, we've been taught that cannibalism is the worst taboo that you can possibly commit. And in cultures that did not have that input, in many instances, it is ritualistic behavior. It's a way for them, for example, to deal with their loved ones after they die. And there were instances where indigenous groups were just as mortified when they heard from anthropologists or missionaries that we bury our dead. So really, culture is king. It's what you're taught. In all that research, did you actually come across any practices where you witnessed cannibalism or maybe something that grew out of a cannibalistic tradition? I guess the closest I came to witnessing actual cannibalism was when I worked with someone in Plano, Texas, who prepared placentas after clients had given birth. And in some instances, these placentas were consumed. Did you try any? Yeah, I did. Uh, my semester had just started, and I started to work on this whole idea of placentophagy, and I got in touch with a scientist, and he gave me the name of of a woman by the name of Claire Rembus down in Plano, Texas. So we went back and forth on the phone and email, and I thought it was going to be maybe a Skype interview. And at a certain point, she said, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, she says, well, my husband is a chef, and if you come down here, he can prepare it for you any way you want it. So within 10 minutes, it seemed to me, I, I booked a flight down to, to Plano, Texas, and and went down there, and uh, and she was incredibly interesting and, and very much into what she uh, uh, what she does. And her husband was indeed a chef, had his little outfit on, and uh, at a certain point, the, they plated it, and, uh, and, and I ate it, uh, and, and I, thought it was, I thought it was delicious. Well, Bill Shutt, thank you very much for joining us. This is Bill Shutt. He's author of the new book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. And here's another option. Yuval Harari's bestseller, Sapiens, reviewed the history of the human race. This month, his new book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, is released, and it looks towards the near future beginning with how we recently have overcome the constant risk of famine, plague, and, to some extent, war, Harari argues that our pursuit of health and technology, and perhaps immortality, may actually pose a threat to our humanity. He makes many provocative arguments about the coming dominance of the tech industry, humans merging with machines, and the powerlessness of most of us to do anything about it since we don't understand how the technology works. 
For readers who enjoy futurists' visions of the meaning of humanity, Homo Deus is a tome that may soon grace your to-read bookstack. And that's it for February. We'll have new books for you coming out in March. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on the Science Magazine Books blog. Our book segment is now a monthly feature. Until next month, you can read book reviews from Science on our books blog, Books et al. Thanks again for listening. If you have an extra minute, please go to earsurvey.com to take a very short, anonymous survey about today's episode. It would be a big help to the show, and I'd appreciate it. Again, that's earsurvey.com for a quick survey to help the show. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.